This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. All right, so the time has gone 10 minutes past the hour of 11 o'clock. Let's turn our, t- uh, our attention to events in Dubai. But you know what? Events in Dubai are really events all around us. If you're feeling a little bit warmer today and you're asking yourself, is the heat wave back? Then the question you need to be asking is, why? Why is there even a heat wave? It's not just because we're heading into the summer season. Why is it just getting hotter and hotter? If you're a romantic and you thought to yourself, oh, there was snow in winter. Beautiful. But snow in Africa, in the southern hemisphere? Why? What's changed? Um, we heard Kanye Makubani talking to us about the climate disaster fund, loss and damage. Why? Because there are more and more erratic weather patterns leading to natural disasters, flooding twice in KwaZulu-Natal within a matter of two or three months earlier this year. Droughts, tsunamis, earthquakes, all of those things are a facet of Mother Nature's wrath. And why is that these are issues that are being deliberated upon at the COP28, the Conference of Parties Summit, under the auspices of the United Nations, hosted by uh, the government of the United Arab Emirates in Dubai. The first thing off the bat when the conference began at the end of last week was adoption of the Climate Disaster Fund, funding for loss and damage in these major, major uh, catastrophes um, unleashed on humanity by Mother Nature, like those tsunamis, hurricanes and the like. But on a more, um, what can I call it, micro level, it's how communities and countries experience changing weather patterns. And so we start talking about adaptation for farmers. We talk about mitigation in terms of how we build future cities and who's going to finance that. We're also talking about what Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, said is he would love to see the summit lead to a commitment by countries to reduce uh, global warming by 1.5 degrees, right? It's getting warmer and warmer. And it's not just because the sun is hotter and hotter. It's because of how the gases and the chemicals and everything in the atmosphere interact to make it feel like it's hotter and hotter. It's those hailstorms when that condensed air mixes with the hot air and then it hits your car. It's trying to see if human behavior, industrial behavior, can change some of these uh, extreme weather patterns, whether extreme cold or extreme warmth. And Africa finds itself very much at the brunt, just where we're located geographically as a continent, means that the rising temperatures, the rising sea levels, um, the erratic weather patterns are going to impact the African ecology that much more. Why? I don't know. But the experts are here to explain all of it for us. We are joined by Professor Guy Midgley, who is a climate change researcher and acting director of the School for Climate Studies at Stellenbosch University. Good morning, Professor Midgley. Hello, Darasha. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I'm going to need you to speak more directly into your receiver. You sound a bit far and distant. Okay. Perfect. There we go. We got you. I've got to pick up the handset. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. And then we're also joined by Brandon Abdenor, who's a climate advocacy lawyer at the Center for uh, the Environment. Good morning. Hi, Lerato. Hi, Guy, and hello to the listeners. Thank you so much for coming through. 
Okay, so let's start with you, uh, Guy Majli. And um, when we say climate change, what do we mean? And why would the Secretary General of the United Nations say he would love to see commitments nationally to determine contributions in line with the 1.5 degree limit? What is this 1.5 degree limit and why is he so concerned about it? I think it's... um I think the one way we can really relate to it as ordinary people is what you mentioned earlier, these climate extremes. And the the issue is that as the average climate uh, shifts, as it becomes warmer and the climate becomes more energetic, uh, we feel it firstly through the uh, impact of extreme climate events. So the climate is much more sensitive in terms of extremes, extreme droughts, hailstorms, uh, extreme flooding events. Uh, and so that is how we feel the shift in the average. So while mm. you know, a half a degree shift in the average doesn't sound like a lot, it really translates into a significant increase in extreme events. Mm. And that is essentially, as President Ramaphosa said yesterday uh, at the global stock take discussion, mm. It's really a poverty and an inequality issue how we address it because these events hit the poorest amongst us the hardest mm. and um, those least able to adapt. So that is a, that is a very okay. important entry point for us. All right. So it's getting hotter and it's also getting colder. And what we need is something somewhere midway is what I'm hearing you say. Because if we don't, people are going to suffer the ramifications in so many areas of agriculture, living, housing, flooding, etc. It's not getting colder. <laughs> we are getting seeing more and more hot extremes and fewer and fewer cold extremes. Okay. But it is the extremes that are hitting us the first because the average is rising. Yes. Okay. All right. I'm staying with you, uh, Guy, and um, I'd like you to help us understand how human behavior is contributing to these hot extremes. Because some people say, well, it's Mother Nature, you know, we've had an ice age. Maybe we're just going through an age geographically. Why are you saying what I do, what Yolanda does is contributing to these warmer mm-hmm. temperatures? Um, yes, we have had an ice age, uh, and we have had warm events, but if you look, uh, and it's always interesting when people say to me, well, we've, the climate's always changing. And I say, well, how? <laughs> so if you look at the last 2 million years, <clears throat> on average, the world has been about five degrees cooler than it is now. So our planet essentially, uh, is adapted to cooler conditions than we currently have. And for the last uh, 10,000 years, the planet warmed naturally to what is called interglacial conditions, uh, and it allowed us to expand as a modern species to build agriculture under fairly stable climate conditions. But now we are making it far warmer than it has been in hundreds of thousands to millions of years. So we are changing the climate to conditions that we haven't seen Uh, certainly as a species uh, before, and our agricultural and trading systems have not seen before. That is the the real issue. But how are we doing it? Because because they are saying this is um, due to human and industrial behavior. So what is it that we do that's changing these climate conditions? It doesn't make sense to many people. The what 
what we've we discovered or was that by burning coal, oil, and natural gas, we could uh, generate energy from plants that existed hundreds of thousands to millions of years ago. Yeah. That is now buried in the uh, buried in rocks. So we're digging up ancient plants that uh, sucked CO2 out of the atmosphere hundreds of thousands to millions of years ago. And we are able to burn that fossil uh, carbon. And it releases that CO2 back into the atmosphere for the first time in millions of years. And that increase in CO2, it's a very powerful greenhouse gas. It captures infrared radiation that is reflected back from the planet, back into space, and it warms the entire Mm. atmosphere. Without greenhouse gases around us, like CO2, water vapor, methane, mm. the, the <clears throat> temperature of the planet's surface would be about minus 15 degrees. The, the world would be a ball of ice. Mm. So these, these very small amounts of greenhouse gases are what okay. maintain the planet at a, a temperature which supports human life, okay. makes the planet habitable. But by adding more, we are now making it much hotter than, okay. uh, than we used to. All right. And that's what's meant by anthropogenic behavior. Okay, let's bring you Correct. into the conversation. Thank you for your patience, Brandon Abdinor. Now we understand that some of the things we've done, that industry has done, has made it warmer and warmer. And it's now getting to a point where it's not even warm anymore. It's hot and it's now unleashing many kinds of disasters. So how does a COP28 or the one previous 27 or the 120, how do they bring all of these issues together into a forum to say, these are the solutions we need to be talking about? Thanks, Lerato. Yeah, I mean, COP is supposed to be the forum at which the, the different nations of the world come together and negotiate how to do these things. Um, it's also the place where the, the kind of leading science is tabled. So we have the UNFCCC, or Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that's the, the political body. And then we also have the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and that's the scientific body which is supposed to inform mm. the, the, the diplomatic negotiations, if you like. And they, they meant to look at, at different aspects. So the one is mitigation. So how do we reduce the emissions of these greenhouse gas emissions to slow down and halt and hopefully eventually reverse these trends that we've been talking about. Um, they also are supposed to be talking about adaptation. So how do we adapt to those impacts that are coming, no matter how well we do the mitigation side of things? Mm. Um, it looks at loss and damage. So those events that have already happened, um, who pays for them? How is support brought to bear to, to support those who've experienced these impacts. Yeah. And then also at the financing of all of that, because it's all very expensive to make these transitions and, and put these measures in place. So the idea there is to look at how do we unlock finance flows that help us with mitigation, that help us with, with the adaptation, and how is this all done equitably? You know, we've got a situation where a lot of, the, the situation in which we find ourselves now is a, is a lot of it as a result of historic emissions. So we've got the USA that's historically the largest emitter. We've got China that's currently the largest emitter. Um, and a lot of these countries, through burning those greenhouse gases or, or emitting them in the past, have gotten to where they are today in terms of being relatively wealthy. That and colonization in, in many respects. Um, so how is it done in a fair way so that those who are more historically accountable bear a larger burden 
um, help with those financial flows and reduce their greenhouse gas, uh, gas emissions at a, a steeper trajectory than countries that are developing. Okay. So you've used words that come up a lot when people are having conversations around um, climate, uh, COP, and um, the future. And you've used mitigation. And adaptation. And recently um, at the World Bank and IMF meetings, these were two words used a lot because apparently these multilateral bodies are being asked to see if they can come up with funding models for adaptation and mitigation. So what are we talking about here? What kinds of monies are needed? How do you fund adaptation? How do you fund mitigation? And how do you how do you present value propositions for such? I'm staying with you, Brandon. Okay, well, in the case of mitigation, um, if we look at the South African situation, a, a large chunk of our greenhouse gas emissions comes from our energy sector and, and particularly the electricity sector because we generate a the burning of coal. Mm. So the low-hanging fruit for this country is to generate electricity not from coal um, or other fossil fuels for that matter, but, but transition to renewables. Okay. And that obviously costs a lot of money. Um, in our case, I mean, we need different generation facilities and we also need upgrades and improvements to our transmission grid, for example, to be able to handle the profile of energy that comes into the system from, from renewable energy as opposed to the traditional methods. So if we look at something like the, the JETP, the, the Just Energy Transition Partnership, a lot of that money is intended to, to fund that kind of transition. So it's technology and, and obviously the politics behind it. Um, adaptation is a bit different. So that's the sort of money that needs to go into infrastructure, into ways of doing things that we can be more prepared for those, those impacts that are coming. We know from a World Bank report that for South Africa, we'll need 866 billion rand by 2030 for adaptation. By 2050, that goes up to 2.4 trillion. Now, one of the problems is that the kind of financing that we've seen for adaptation is way, way less than it is for mitigation. And I think one of the reasons is that there's still money to be made um, in quite obvious ways for mitigation. If one shifts to a renewable energy system, there are suppliers, uh, manufacturers, installers, etc. That that make business out of doing that. Um, so it's, it's seen still in a more traditional sense as attractive investment, whereas adaptation far less so, far less obviously. So we're not okay. seeing the same kinds of commitment. And loss and damage is, quote, unquote, no return on investment unless we, we consider, you know, protection of life as, okay. as important, which sometimes right. it doesn't appear to be um, in those circles. But, yeah, that's generally what the landscape right. looks like. All right. I'm going to ask uh, Professor Midgley to re-enter the conversation, also helping us understand what we mean by mitigation and adaptation. And this time, I'd like you to just take it down to its bare bones. So, if you are a farmer today in South Africa and... It's getting warmer, which means you might face a drought at some point, which might impact your crop. Are you in a mitigation or an adaptation phase? And what kind of help do you need and what's on offer? Mm, great question. Uh, well, let's say you're a, you're a farmer uh, of, of, grain, of a grain crop. Um, so you're growing millies. Um, your your main fa- your, your main op- uh, focus would be on adaptation. So you would be looking to ensure that you have enough water to get you through a drought. You would be trying to conserve water in the soil. 
to ensure that uh, you know that your your plants don't suffer the effects of drought, um, it, and uh, you'd be looking possibly to shift the date on which you plant your crops so that you you hit the right temperatures and that kind of thing. But it's very important to point out that farming actually also offers mitigation opportunities, opportunities to store carbon in the soil, in the crop. Mm. So one of the ways that farmers can do this is by increasing the carbon content of the soil, which would also increase water holding capacity, in other words, give you the adaptation benefit, but also give you a carbon benefit from increasing carbon mm. content in the soil. And that's a really important part of fully sustainable farming, you're looking for win-win mitigation and adaptation strategies mm. that uh, the farmers can benefit from mm. and potentially sell the carbon, in other words, monetize the carbon that they store okay. in a better managed soils through plowing less, uh, using fewer fertilizers and that kind of thing. Okay. So it's a, it's a two-way street. For, for agriculture in many, many ways. And this is where we need great science. Uh, we need locally uh, applied science that uh, favors our farmers and helps them to, uh, okay. to find those win-win solutions so that they can gain from the carbon market and from the, the, the benefits to the crop. Right. I'm staying with you, Guy Midgley. Now, let's imagine you're not a farmer. You are a city slicker like myself. Your girl is living in Joburg and you love living in Joburg, but the house is feeling very, very hot, and you mm. wish the construction company built it differently. So, mm-hmm. in the future, what would that mean in terms of adaptation or mitigation in how we build new cities and construct things? Hugely important question. This this region of the world is the fastest urbanizing, uh, apart from some areas of China. So this is a massive mitigation and adapt- adaptation opportunity. In adaptation terms, you want to build cities that uh, that avoid heat island effects. So you want to use uh, nature-based solutions like tree planting in cities uh, that would cause cooling and shading to uh, to assist people and to, to reduce those heating effects from tar roads. You would want to uh, build sustainable transport systems to reduce the need for people to be using fossil energy cars, uh, you know, electric you know, electric supply systems so people can use electric cars. Mm-hmm. And then your, your urban development would be looking to be maximally solar, uh, uh, focused on solar energy so that you could generate, if you wanted to cool buildings, you could run them off solar energy, which would not produce greenhouse gases, and you would be cooling your buildings at the time when you have maximum solar power. makes complete sense to do those kinds of things. So you want to be building cities that take advantage of all of these, uh, these, these different things. And we need urban designers, architects, who are fully aware of these opportunities because they will save people thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of rands in South Africa to use uh, more sustainable okay. uh, you know, city design, town design. All right. We've literally got 30 seconds before the news. So I'm going to ask us all just to take a break. And when we come back, it's you, Brandon Abdenor. And what I'd like you to help us understand are the uh, touch points, the conflict points in this conversation. So firstly, I'm going to ask you to help unpack the term decarbonization for us and why in the conversations we're having in South Africa, ESCOM is now a central part of the story and perhaps the automotives are also a central part of the story. Why is the focus on them 
even the term just energy transition. We'll be back with you in a moment. Power Talk, the view of the nation. Yes, and we're taking a view on COP28, the Conference of Party Summit taking place right now as we speak in Dubai. South Africa obviously participating as a UN member state, but also as a country that has uh, drafted a just energy transition implementation plan. Yesterday, the president says he presented or he just um, spoke to the UN Secretary General about it. I don't know if it was a presentation and an an accountability forum or just kind of a discussive forum. Uh, And we know that uh, a month ago, uh, the Presidential Climate Commission was literally uh, debated in Parliament to be signed into law as something akin to a Chapter 9 institution, I think. So this program getting full steam ahead in South Africa. But just before we talk about some of the tangibles, like the adoption of a climate disaster fund, let's just make sure we understand what is being spoken about. We have uh, Professor Guy Midgley, uh, a climate change researcher and acting director of the School for Climate Studies at Stellenbosch University, also joined by Brandon Abdenor, uh, climate advocacy lawyer at the Center for Environmental Rights. Uh, Brandon, so you're going to help us first, the terminology. What do we mean by decarbonization and why do countries like South Africa need to think about it? Well, Lerato, thanks. Yeah, I mean, all the countries need to, to obviously think about it. Decarbonization is really a, a very broad term that refers to the shift to get an economy and get a society from being based on a carbon-intensive output through the burning of fossil fuels mm. to a situation where we can still do the things that we need to do without that carbon intensity. So in other words, without emitting those greenhouse gases. Okay. So we should move from industries that are big emitters. And we're told South Africa's um, emissions contribute about 1.2% to uh, gas emissions in the world. Some people say that's a small figure, comparatively speaking. Some people say it could get worse because you've got strategic minerals, mining, especially coal. So explain to us the connection between all of these, Brandon. Okay, so firstly, I mean, 1.2% is not necessarily that high, but um, in terms of ranking, we are the 14th highest greenhouse gas emitter, and we're certainly the, the highest on the African continent by, by a long way. And if we consider that every bit counts, um, that percentage is still something that needs to be addressed. Um, I mean, fossil fuels and the, the burning and the production of them, I mean, that's what gives us this, what, what seems like easy energy. And in a way, it is easy energy. And perhaps the costs weren't understood um, at the outset. Um, in South Africa, that very much means um, the burning of coal for electricity. And this is why some uh, body like ESCOM comes into it. Mm. Because we need to now generate that electricity from sources that, that don't emit these greenhouse, gas, um, greenhouse gases. And obviously, if we look at the, the kind of money that is made by the fossil fuel industry, it's, it's enormous. I mean, there's some, some estimates are in the order of $3 billion a day globally. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, South Africa is a small chunk of that. But the, the owners and the, the sort of shareholders of that kind of money have a strong vested interest in maintaining that revenue stream. So, so that's where a lot of resistance comes from. Um, and then there are people that are employed in these value chains, and they have a, a very understandable interest to, to keep their jobs. Mm. And that's why it gets challenging, is mm. 
how do we make this decarbonisation move without um, allowing certain vulnerable groupings to bear the brunt mm-hmm. on behalf of all of society? Okay. And this is where this concept of a, a just transition comes right. in. How do we make the shift without letting just one grouping bear the burden of that change? Right. So, maybe, maybe I could come in, Dorota. Is that, is that okay? Please. Just to add a perspective to what Ben's given, which is quite correct. I think that what you're seeing at the COP, and it's been developing, as you said, as COP28 for, for, for more than two decades, mm. is the, the need to connect the ecology of our planet with its fundamental economy. So as you know, human population has risen and our demands on the planet's resources have increased, we are now approaching a point where they, uh, we're starting to exceed the limits of the planet. And so we have to find a way to connect the economy of the planet with its ecological boundaries. The point I try to make is we can negotiate with each other, but we cannot negotiate with nature. Nature sets the limit for uh, a stable climate for our, for our society, and we're now approaching that limit that is what the science has mm. put on the table. We have about, uh, to, to stay under one and a half degrees of warming, we have about nine years at current emission levels to uh, left before mm. we, we broach that target okay. with a 50-50 chance. So we're getting extremely close to a level at which we, we have to turn this, this whole ship around. Yeah. Uh, and that is a cataclysmic shift in the way the economy has to work because it has to, we have to shift from the fundamental source of energy, which has been fossil fuels, to renewables. That is the only way that we can do this. Okay. And it's everybody has to, it's a team game. So it's got to be done equitably and everybody has to play. Mm. Uh, and that is the crux of what is going on mm. at the moment. You use the word equitably, and this is, I think, where the African position has gotten really, um, can at times feel very bellicose, because there is a sense that, you know, as Brandon says, at 1.2% of global emissions, South Africa is the largest emitter, and certainly the largest emitter in Africa and one of the least in the world. And yet Africa is told to come up with really ambitious Targets, And so there is a sense that, fine, we all need to get to a future where we are conscious of our uh, emissions, but it can't be tight timetables, certainly for continents that are not the guilty parties. And so why can't a country like South Africa be allowed to continue to emit greenhouse gas emissions until it's actually ready? both from an affordability point of view, market point of view, economy point of view, to do the transition? Why must the transition be happening in parallel when it's not the worst offender? Well, I think uh, yeah, that, that certainly is a, is a major and important point. And if you listen to uh, President Ramaphosa yesterday, yeah, he, he made this point again. Um, I think there are a number of, number of issues here. But the... The critical thing here is, is a mind shift that we need to stop seeing this as a punishment, but as an opportunity. So if Southern Africa made use of its very plentiful 
renewable energy resources. Mm. We're essentially one of the four parts of the world that's kind of like the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. And for example, if we began to produce renewable energy products from renewable energy, that would enormously help the world as, as it goes forward. If we continue on a fossil fuel path, we could end up with stranded assets and really, uh, you know, deep six our economy going into the future. So that's, that, that's the opportunity and the risk. But also, uh, I would also say that um, it's what, what President Ramaphosa said was we've got to take a careful look at what is looking like an increasingly unilateral uh, imposition of things like carbon taxes. Mm. And uh, he, he made quite a nuanced point yesterday, and I think he's right, that we've got to peel back the layers of what would be essentially putting the economies of the developed world onto a carbon standard. Mm. Um, and that could be extremely unfair, because if you look at economies like ours, which are very exposed to exporting to, to the developed world, if we have to pay carbon taxes, uh, and then you go and look at uh, the North American free trade area, you know, mm -hmm. Mexico, USA, and Canada, yeah. they have enough trade not to worry about being exposed to those carbon taxes. Mm -hmm. So there, there's some economic implications, which President Ramaphosa is pointing out, which I think we need to look at very, very carefully. Okay. And um, so as we shape this new world economy, it's going to take a lot of careful thinking about how to make this happen mm. in a way that doesn't damage uh, our economies. And it's more than just fossil fuels. It is about the entire opportunity and the way the globe, mm. the, the, the planetary system, imposes this articulation between ecology and economy right. through carbon, That's uh, the currency of carbon. That's going to be critical. Okay. Brandon, I just want to bring you back, and I'm referring to a Washington Post uh, article I just took a cursory look at yesterday. And it's the fact that even whilst all these big conversations are happening about greening, cleaning the environment, uh, some of the oil producers are thinking of ramping up production. When you look at their projections and their strategies for the next five or six years, they're not pulling back. They're going full throttle in terms of oil producers. So yes, at the moment they've cut supply because the world is in a kind of a an economic slowdown. But it's not that they believe they need to start decarbonizing. So why are other resource-rich countries like the South Africans of this world uh, expected to move in a particular direction when the oil producers are not? Yeah, I mean, I think therein comes some of the, the fundamental injustice. Um, and, and I think at this COP, we're very much seeing how the oil and gas industry is by and large intending to, as, as you say, not only maintain business as usual, but actually expand production. Um, and that is hugely problematic. And, and I think the, the politics of this COP, where the, the president of the COP is a CEO of a, of a large national oil company with expansion plans um, and is influencing the, the nature of the discourse from that angle um, is, is very problematic. The, the Paris Agreement, which is the sort of main document that sets up the architecture, does speak about common but differentiated responsibility. So it recognizes that historical accountability is not equal and that the opportunities and the, the wherewithal to decarbonize are not equal. And therefore, 
technically allows for developing countries to decarbonize at a slower rate. And if we look at our, what we call a nationally determined contribution or a, a target, an yeah. aspiration in terms of that Paris Agreement, um, there is a fair share adjustment in our target. So we might be responsible for 1.2% of the world's emissions, but our, our target is, um, with that fair share adjustment, is around 0.75. So provided this sort of um, gets equitably distributed and kind of policed across all the nations in the world, technically it should should be okay. But we also need to again, differentiate between the sort of political will of the different nation states and then these, these commercial interests, which are often sort of multinational and, and really operate across the globe. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, the fossil fuel companies at this point or historically have had a, a social license to continue as they are. And I think one of the important things that has to happen is that social license needs to get challenged so that we can actually say to corporations, that they are behaving in a way that's irresponsible, that's going to impact on right. all of us. And they actually need to start planning to either shift their business to renewables and something cleaner mm-hmm. or prepare for a, a decline in revenue. And I think uh, Guterres said that quite literally at the opening of the COP. Mm. But Brandon, it's worse than that. The fossil the fuel companies also benefit from subsidies to pursue these fossil fuels, which if spent on renewable energy uh, 20 years ago, would have we would have solved the problem by now so it's worse than that this is a cynical move by uh, the president of, of cop 28 you know he let slip his position yesterday or the day before saying that the science didn't support uh, a phase out of fossil fuels and of course ipcc the intergovernmental panel doesn't prescribe policy but the science from the IPCC is entirely consistent with a phase out of fo- fossil fuel. Mm. So, you know, we've got, to, we've got to keep our eyes open on this. Um, and there's two sides to coin. South Africa sits in the middle mm. of an adaptation and a mitigation nexus. We have to do both. Mm. And we, we should grab opportunities as fast as we possibly can. We have excellent experience yeah. in renewable energy rollout, which has been slowed down by government. And we could have got far further down the road if we'd focused on this. All right. Let's talk about the South African position, uh, Brandon. Maybe you can help us with it, you know, because I'm looking at uh, Barbara Creasy uh, giving an update on what they call the global stock take to drive uh, climate action. Now, quite a few things have happened in South Africa. There is a just energy transition plan, we hear, a draft plan, uh, an implementation plan. There is a presidential climate uh, commission, which by act of parliament, might be formalized into a proper, proper agency. And then there are all these global pledges, and we're told South Africa is going to need much more than $8 billion if we are to make that transition in the coming years. Um, and then there's lots of talk of how to go about it. Um, do you start with the coal sector uh, to reduce electricity provided or to, to reduce the dependency on ESCOM power stations, which use coal to provide electricity? And do we start having an integrated resource plan that brings in renewables? So just tell us where South Africa fits, what the approach is, what the South Africans are saying. Okay, I mean, our approach in terms of our targets for complying with the Paris Agreement and attempting to reach that 1.5 are insufficient, but not terrible. So on paper, the the kind of 
intent seems to be there and the agenda seems to be there. And uh, we've got a we've got an NDC or, or target that's it for the range. It's not just one number. And what what our government has said is, if we get the financing we need, we'll achieve the lower end of the range. So they're making the obtaining of this finance a, a very key part of it, which from a global climate justice perspective does make sense. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the, the coal is an issue. I mean, our, our current RP actually makes provision for new coal, which is it's just beyond understanding how that can still be in there when, when the climate and the other um, impacts of coal are understood. We also need an RP that doesn't switch to natural gas because this is something that is being touted by the fossil fuel companies as being a necessary transition fuel, and, and that is strongly disputed. Um, natural gas, while it's a little less carbon intensive than coal um, when it's burnt, mm. ultimately is as harmful to the climate as coal because we have fugitive emissions or, or methane that, that leaks from where it's sort of extracted from the ground, transported, stored, etc. So the, the net result is that gas is no better. Um, and yet we have around 14,000 megawatts of, of gas to power projects in some form of um, seeking approval. So we do need to see an IRP that that backs up the, the, the necessary steps that need to be taken mm-hmm. from a, a climate point of view. So on paper, we, we do in many respects say many of the right things. But if we look at what's happening in the energy space with, with this attempt to keep coal going, um, to, to bring gas in to, to explore for, for new oil and gas offshore and onshore, those actions suggest that there's a, a sort of another agenda that does not uh, comply with the, the stated agenda of, of at least attempting to be responsive to climate change. Okay, and, and when you're not sort of being diplomatic, what do you mean? What's the other agenda? What is, what is counterintuitive about this? Vested interests. Again, the amount of money that gets made, and in South Africa it's not so much oil and gas, it um, hasn't been, it's been coal, and, and the kind of money that, that coal miners have made. And then everyone in that value chain who, who, who works with and promotes and manufactures and installs mm-hmm. that technology, there is a lot of money to be made. So if, if one looks at the, you know, what could the rationale be for decisions like this that really everyone should understand is, is deathly, ultimately, and yet mm-hmm. is being pursued, then one can only deduce that there's, a lot of vested interest from a commercial sense with political facilitation. Okay. Let's go back to COP, uh, Professor Midley. And um, one of the things that came out of COP yesterday, this weekend, is 110 countries committing to tripling their renewable energy capacity by the year 2030. So basically within the next six years, 110 countries say we would have taken decisive steps to start introducing more renewables into our grid, whether we're setting up solar plants or introducing wind plants or moving into gas, we would have taken those steps. Um, What do you understand about this resolution? Is it feasible? And uh, did South Africa commit itself? Well, it's totally feasible, uh, particularly for South Africa, um, with with enough money and uh, political will. And engineering skill, which we which we have, but it's also aligned with the African agenda, which was stated in the Nairobi Declaration a mm. few months ago, which was to increase Africa's renewable energy from about 60 gigawatt to 300 gigawatts by 2030, five mm. times. Mm. That's yeah, that's building five ESCOMs 
in, in five years. And, you know, I've seen analysis of this. This is quite feasible. Uh, and Professor, uh, President Ramaphosa himself has been talking at recent trade uh, meetings about uh, funding of Grand Inga and the, the huge potential hydropower that could be provided by by Africa's hydro resources, mm. which could tap, which could be you know, become a massive battery uh, in combination with a, a big re- rollout of renewables across the subcontinent. So, with enough vision and the correct uh, approach here, this region could become the renewable energy capital of the world. Uh, It's an extraordinary opportunity which offers a cleaner future with lower health costs for all of Africa's peoples, more resilient energy system distributed across the subcontinent. Mm -hmm. And uh, it will contribute to regional peace, regional cooperation and well-being. You know, if you go to a renewable economy, you're in a different kind of economics because the cost of renewable energy is so much lower Mm. than fossils which is why fossils have to be subsidized. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have a low energy system, you can be creative with, uh, with people's lives. Mm. So we are really shooting ourselves in the foot by hanging on to coal like, mm. uh, like a couple of old dinosaurs, you know. Okay, but that's also because people need electricity today. We can't wait for these projects to close in terms of the investment cycle and then uh, get started up. I mean, some wind farms take up to six or seven years to get up and running from the point of the bid. Uh, solar energy, wind energy can roll out much more quickly than any other form of energy like nuclear and, uh, and wind and, and coal. So, what, so, so what's, the, what, what's hamstringing the process, the bureaucracy? Well, in South Africa, it's our grid. Uh, the, the, the major source of energy is in, in, in the Northern Cape, which it doesn't have enough energy uh, power supply, uh, power, power um, connection to, to the rest of the grid. So we've got to, we've got to invest in a, in a, in a smart grid. Uh, but that's entirely achievable. <laughs> it's absolutely achievable with enough political will and funding. Okay. Your views on this one, Brandon, I think from what I've heard South Africans say, they're not anti-renewables per se, but they're anti-pursuance of the renewable agenda at the cost of electricity today. 10 to 11 hours of outages at ESCOM, and then they feel like you're saying, well, then that's the price you're going to have to pay unless you go the renewable route. And we can't see renewables coming onto the system. In fact, we're told in terms of the industrial needs, baseload needs coal. Renewables can never provide baseload. (laughs) Sorry, Brandon. (laughs) So, Brandon, your Uh, views on this one. Listen, I'm not an expert. I'm just, I am just telling you what people are saying is that baseload needs coal. Renewables is a nice to have, but it's not going to kickstart South Africa Inc. the The industrialization we need and certainly the supply we need. I think the thing to bear in mind is that the current system, which is coal, is what's failing us. Um, there are all sorts of reasons for that. But the, the system we have now is old, it's unreliable, it's not being maintained. Um, to bring new coal on, on board, as Guy said, takes many years and it's, it's incredibly expensive and most financiers won't even touch it. Um, there was a, re- a report that came out last year that had showed that had we built this between 5 and 10 gigawatts of renewables over the last five years, 96% of load shedding would have been averted. So the reality is that we are where we are now. Mm. Um, so so do, we, do we reinvest in this old system at great cost and, and uh, 
big delays, or do we now go for the quickest, cheapest, and fastest? And the modeling has showed, and this is in a recommendation from the Presidential Climate Commission on electricity, is we will meet our needs if we build 50 to 60 gigawatts of, of renewables up to 2030, um, perhaps with 3 to 5 gigawatts of, of peak gas, which we're not sure we necessarily mm. agree with, but that's using gas in the way that we're currently using diesel. I think what's keeping this system in place is a failure to do full cost accounting, because if we start looking at the health impact from the air quality, um, from the coal, for example, the, the impact on water, the, the threats to food security, and we really weighed all of those costs up as well as had a really honest look at the job creation potential of these different parts. Mm. Um, sure, there are jobs in the fossil fuel value chain, but are those measured against the, the jobs, first of all, from, from green industrialization okay. and the jobs that would get impacted from tourism and agriculture if we start to see the climate impact right. ramping up even more? All right. There's something that you said, Brandon, but I'm going to ask you, Professor Midgley, to help us. When all is said and done, we're told that South Africa really better be moving quickly on its transition program because some of the country's biggest trading partners, whether Germany, the United Kingdom, the United States, they have at a legislative parliamentary Congress level have started to introduce policies that say British companies cannot buy products or trade with companies that are still emitting fossil fuels. I'm being very simplistic in what I'm saying. So there is a future we are headed into where there will be penalties for buying a shirt made in South Africa if it's made in a factory that still uses coal for energy, for argument's sake. And so because that's what's happening, it's going to be costly to continue trade abroad if you haven't made the transition because all of the companies that need to invest or buy or sell are going to be bound by legislation in their countries to have a kind of an ESG consciousness. So we have to think about this. Is this correct? Look, it is, it is de facto correct. It isn't fair on us. And President Ramaphosa made this point yesterday that that imposition if effectively of a carbon tax is unilateral and it's it's unfair and i think what what developing countries have to point out is that we have accepted the, this new paris accord uh, agreement where we are participating in full transparency which is a, a concession from the previous arrangement where we were called annex uh, non-annex one countries where we didn't have to meet certain requirements we gave that up to sign on to the Paris Accord. And we need to make that point more strongly to stop this kind of unilateral decision. Of course, it is, a, it is an incentive for us, but it's not a fair one. And uh, mm. I, I agree with President Ramaphosa, That's, that is not fair. Uh, that has got to be combined with significant help for mm. our economy to shift and to go through the just energy transition. It's, right. uh, it, that is his nuanced point that he made yesterday. All right. As we say goodbye to you, Brandon Abdenor and Guy Midley. Brandon, what can we expect, if anything major, coming out of COP28 when it concludes on the 12th? The thing we really need to see is agreement in the final, final agreement that comes out of there, that there is agreement to phase out all fossil fuels. Right now, there's a very watered-down version of that relating to unabated coal. So that is what we need, and we need to start seeing money going into that loss and damage fund, and we need to see financial commitments 
to adaptation to to help countries like South Africa and others. All right. I want to thank you, gentlemen. There's still a lot going on. Uh, the conference began uh, uh, 1st of December and it concludes on the 12th of December. Some good, uh, you know, initial outcomes. But in the end, it's going to be who pays for what, what national budgets are accountable for, and the timetables for developing countries versus richer nations and uh, the countries that wield power, for instance, as oil and gas majors versus the mineral producers versus the others who are just told, adapt and mitigate. Uh, it's been today's edition of Power Talk. Professor Guy Medgley from Stellenbosch University, Brandon Abdenor from the Centre for Environmental Rights and all of you, our power listeners, we appreciate you. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.